Yes, as, as Cliff was saying, let's start at the beginning, but let's start being obnoxious with pop quiz. So, pop quiz. Um, which person of the Trinity do you personally feel like you have the least connection to, least relationship with, least clear conception of, and why is that, do you think? see the Holy Spirit is more abstract than, say, God the Father or God the Son. Because there's lots of pictures of God the Father and God the Son. There is! There's no pictures of the Holy Spirit. Help me out here. How is God the Father physically described in Scripture? Because we see the pictures. We've seen the photographs of God the Father. How is he physically described in Scripture? If you're seeing me, you see the Father. But you're having to presuppose the Son there. Yeah. Work on that one. How has the Father been seen? What does he look like? Moses sees his face. But that could be... No, 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 no just the back. Actually, oh, the back. Yeah, that's right, just he didn't the see back. his face. He didn't that's see his face. That's the whole point. But they refer to him as not seeing his face. Right. So he has right. some... Very, of, it's very bright. Yeah. White and very bright. Well, because, I mean, God, Jesus even talks about God being spirit. Spirit, God. But we go, yeah, but I know what a father is. Right, but do you know what... The Father looks like. Just look at Sistine Chapel. He's up there. <laughs> when we think of God the Father and what He looks like, I mean, about the only thing we get in Scripture is brightness, and there's a throne that He's sitting on. Yeah. Other than that, there is no physical description really. But we tend to picture Zeus sitting there on His throne. For that matter, how is how is Jesus physically described in Scripture? Kind of like a guy. Yeah. He has a beard. You know that because the Bible prophetically talks about his beard being plucked out. Oh. Other than that, I'm like, I, I don't, we don't know anything. We don't know anything about Christ, what he looked like. And yet, we tend to know how to visualize a person. We know how to visualize a father. And so we kind of tend to assume that we know how to visualize God. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit, ruach, is grammatically feminine. In the New Testament, the word for spirit, pneuma, is grammatically neuter in form. And both of those words mean spirit, or wind, or breath. All kind of the same thing. You know what I mean by having, having a gender? Most languages other than English, the words have a gender. Um, sometimes they make sense. A lot of times they don't. The German word for girl is neutered in general. So, you know, I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a neuter window and a feminine door in German. It's bizarre. But, there, but there's a gender to the Holy Spirit that's, that's feminine in the Old Testament and neuter in the, in the New Testament, and yet Jesus repeatedly breaks with that grammar, that gender, by referring to the Spirit as He over and over and over again. Why is that? I mean, there's a couple of different answers I've heard from people. Yeah. Well, the, the Trinity, since they're all one. That's an interesting take. They're all one, and the Father, Father, the Son, and the other dude. <laughs> oh, but I mean, without being flippant. Yeah, okay. Yeah. With some consistency. What else? Well, it's not that, because he's alive. Yeah, it's, 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 it's Jesus saying he's a, he's a person, not an active force. I mean, there are some cults that will refer to the Holy Spirit as God's active force, not God himself. But there's a lot of even evangelical Christians that don't see him that much different than that. You know, what's the Holy Spirit? Uh, Pentecost-y thingy? You know, it was like, I guess he's empowering. Even as I was talking to somebody this week, um, as they were talking, they kept slipping between calling the Holy Spirit it and he, he and it, and it was doing this and he, because it is kind of like, it's like, strangely, you never do that about Jesus, do you? So, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, it thought it was a good idea. It's like, no. 
So, we want to do a little mini-master about meeting the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Why do we not necessarily know him as well as maybe we know the other ones? So I want to look at a, at a bunch of different things over the next couple of weeks, but today I want to specify looking at the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. Because an amazing number of times when you think about the Holy Spirit, especially as Christians, our mind jumps to Pentecost, doesn't it? Why, why is that? Why, does, why is it for most Christians we tend to jump to Pentecost when we think of the activity of the Holy Spirit? Because that's when Jesus blessed all Christians. Okay. It's dramatic. It is, isn't it? It's physical. So think about that, especially if the answer to the the pop quiz was, I tend not to think about the Holy Spirit or have a clear conception because it is just so conceptual a concept. As opposed to a father and son, I get those, but a spirit, I'm not sure what that looks like. But this, we saw stuff happen, right? Or everybody say, well, what else? Anything else? Well, there was that whole descending on Jesus like a dove thing. Another visual thing, right? We tend to point to these kinds of stuff. But what I'd like to do is look at the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. So I mentioned something a while back to somebody about the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. And, and I'm not going to pick on them because I think all of us could do this sort of thing at times. But they said, was the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Which is a legit question, because, be honest, if we talk about the Holy Spirit, for a lot of us, most of the time, we don't think Old Testament activity. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. But for a lot of people, that's not where they go. And the person was legitimately trying to remember, was the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament? I guess he was. But it's kind of obscure, right? There's not a ton of activity. What we're going to do today is what's called a lit review. Uh, which means I'm going to do relatively little talking, and you guys are going to do a lot of reading. Um, so we're going to go through a bunch of verses, and we're, I want to go through them at a quick enough clip that I'm going to ask that instead of me taking time each time to say, hey, can somebody find a verse, which will take us forever, let's just go in order. I'm going to start with Alex. Alex, very first verse, that's yours to read. And then Megan, and the, if you don't want to read today, just look at the next person and say, you know what, I'm not in it today. Please, don't worry about it. And there's no harm, no foul. But we want to keep moving, okay? So that, that way you know when it's your turn. That sounds fair. Okay. So, somebody read me Genesis 1, 1 to 2. And by somebody, that's Alex. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So help me out. What do we learn about the Holy Spirit in these verses? Creation. Why is that significant? Who else is there at the beginning? No, finish what you're saying then. I was going to say because sometimes like, you're talking about that we think of him in the in the New Testament. He's been there from from whatever yeah. go is for. Yeah, literally. Look how it go. Yeah. Literally go. What were you going to say? Sometimes I think. Even though maybe we don't articulate it uh, or actually think about it. think of the Holy Spirit as something that's being created. And mm -hmm. by thinking of, about the fact that the Holy Spirit was you know, God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit all being there, they were created. They always so God the Father, God in his in his overarching sense. The Spirit, what you said, the Son. How do you, why, why would we say that the Son was there in the first two verses? He does, but how does that work? Doesn't, this verse doesn't say, these verses don't say that the Son is there, do they? Well, isn't it, if you look at it, is it a plural word? He does speak in the plural. Okay, so what was the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Is there a verse in the New Testament that sounds vaguely like that in the beginning? So, the New Testament makes the argument that Jesus, all things were created for him, by him, through him, right? By the, what? By the word. How did God create things in the very beginning, are we told? He spoke. So do we see God the Father? Do we see God the Word before being made flesh? Do we see God the Holy Spirit from the from the 
word go. Yes. And yet we tend to sit there and think, oh, I struggle to see the Holy Spirit acting in the Old Testament as clearly as in the... Okay. And that's understandable, but it's, it, it's interesting. Right, let's do another one, though. Because um, remember, we're going in order here. So, Megan, do me a favor. How is God's Spirit actively involved in our creation in verses like Genesis 2-7? which is echoed in later verses like Job 33.4 or Psalm 104. Again, if you're on deck, you're on deck. So. Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. What does Job 33.4 say? The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. What does Psalm 104.29-30 say? When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the So, you may not automatically jump to seeing the Holy Spirit in Genesis 2-7, but do we see the Holy Spirit in Genesis 2-7? How so? How is the Holy Spirit intimately, intimately involved in the creation of humanity? In Genesis 2 7. Suppose it depends where the breath of life comes from. God breathed a breath of life into you? And if the word for the Spirit is a similar word to breath, it is the, way, the same word for breath. Well, <laughs> so God breathed life's breath. God breathed his ruach into humanity. And Job, Psalm, later on say, well, yeah, that's where life comes from, is the Holy Spirit, right? That's the difference between you being dust and clay and being a human being, is the Holy Spirit breathing life into you. Again, I go back to the pop quiz. Which part of the Holy Spirit do we tend to least have a feeling of connection to, least have a feeling of relationship with? And I'm like, ironically, if there's one part of the Trinity that most directly in Genesis is involved in our specific creation, it's the Holy Spirit. But we tend to think of him very conceptually instead of God breathing into us life. And it, it's taking his spirit from us that renews our life, which actually puts other verses like David saying, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, in a slightly different light. It's not just, hey, I really like prophesying and I love the feeling of being filled with you. It's life, your very life that you've given to me. What does is, what is his work here suggest about the nature of the Holy Spirit and our relationship to him? Oh my goodness! This is being recorded! The whole internet heard... Sarah, say that. <laughs> okay. Okay, give me plenty of time. Well, that you're intended to be in relationship, intimate relationship with him. That he is part of our life's blood with this. Okay, next person. Exodus 31, 1 through 5. We're going along, okay. David, take this one and... and Whoever's next on deck, just keep taking these. Exodus 31, 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Hazel, son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic design for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Okay, help me out here. What's the Holy Spirit doing in these verses? To be inspiration. Uh, well, that is that is why we get respiration, inspiration, aspiration. Even in English, <laughs> we associate spirit with breath and life, right? We just don't normally think of it because we're so used to our own words. But yes, what's the Holy Spirit doing here? A gift of... Because that's, that's what you think of when you think 
you know, spiritual gift inventory. I have the spiritual gift of working with wood. We don't often touch that. <laughs> Actually, we don't know. He might have just been, you know, no, but I was trained as a carpenter. <laughs> but that's the thing. Is, that, is this normally the sort of thing that most people tend to think of as a gift of the Holy Spirit? Of, I work with metals and wood. Goodly-ish. Why? Because there are two lists of gifts in the New Testament written by Paul, but even though they conflict, people tend to take just one of them and say that's all there is. I'm not going to go into the word conflict, but I will say, but I will say, yeah, you, you go, we tend to go, well, the New Testament gives us the master lists, and I don't want to add anything to Scripture, therefore, that's it, that's what he does. Besides, those tend to be more conceptual, or at least we tend to focus more on the spiritual kinds of thing. You know, well, included in those lists are even things that are very tangible, and yet those are the ones that we, modern people, tend to go, yeah, well, maybe not that one so much. But, you know, you know stuff you shouldn't know. That sounds like spiritual gifts. Um, God gave me a spiritual gift of working with my hands and building something. It's, it's not just my ability. It's not just my predilection. God gifted me here to do this. Mark. Mark has mad skills. He's well trained. His heart leans towards that. That's great. Mine's a spiritual gift. There's a difference. And if you go, oh, I don't know that that's always true, really, because I've heard some people who are gifted speakers, i.e., they're really good at it. They've trained and it comes naturally to them. And I've seen other people that really aren't. <laughs> who then stand up and share something that you go, that was powerful and that was beyond anything that person could do on their own. That was a spiritual gift. We tend to look at this and try to compartmentalize God in general, especially the Holy Spirit, to a degree where we have now, again, conceptualized him and kept him away from our everyday stuff to do the stuff that we go, well, that's spiritual, i.e. weird, i.e. different, because isn't that sometimes the way we look at spiritual things in, in our everyday lives? Well, there was the everyday things, but then sometimes I try to be more spiritually minded. You go... Pretty sure spiritually minded was intended to be used every second of every day. Yeah. And just because you have a spiritual gift, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to practice it or you know get better or make it a skill. Absolutely. I think He wants us to. Let me beat this this horse one more time. Let's say Megan just is horrible at something, and then God can <laughs> use her. And can, and then God can use her mightily when he's gifting her. How much more could God use her if she says, you know, when he's not gifting me, maybe I should be working on this? So that I... Those 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 gears don't go... When God finally decides to use me in something. So, let's do another one. Numbers 24, 1 through 5. Numbers 24, 1 through 5. We're talking about Balaam. <laughs> now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel and kept tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered this oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor. The oracle of one whose eye sees clearly. The oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are open. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Okay, he goes on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> What's the Holy Spirit doing in these verses? Trying to take it over. Why do you say taking over? Because 
Because it's not what he really wanted to say. Yeah! Help me out here. What's the context of this? What's making this significant? Oh, yeah, he's supposed to be cursing. <laughs> <Did> he? Yeah! <laughs> he got hired to say, curse you, naughty, naughty. And he kept going up going, Oh, you guys rock, and God loves you, and I didn't want to do this. But to his credit, he does go back and, and say, what was I supposed to do? I'm not actually a hired prophet that says whatever anybody wants him to say. I am a hired prophet that says stuff God tells me to say. But you can hire me to come and bless your sheep, or to bless your marriage. You, I'm totally for hire. <laughs> But I'm legitimately somebody who actually does speak what God lays on my heart. I'm an actual prophet. I'm just a jerk. But I'm an actual prophet. You hired me to go curse the Hebrews, and I'm like, I'm fine with that. And I'm going to try, and I'm, because I'm sensitive to God's spirit, how could I possibly say anything other than what God's spirit lays on my heart to say? Um, even with good prophets, like just last night at the dinner table, we were reading um, an exchange between um, King David and Nathan, where King David wants to build a temple for God, and Nathan says, yeah, go ahead, God would think that's a really cool idea. And then later, <laughs> God comes to him at night and says, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> tell David this instead. That's right. Tell, tell, and David even, because he's... Because he even comes and says, we'll read it in a second, David says, I have this great idea. I'm going to build a temple. And God says, no, you're not. <laughs> you're too bloodthirsty. You've done too many bad things. You don't get to. And I went, well, nerds. God even gave me all these plans to do them. I don't get to be the one to do them. Um, so, yeah, listen to the Holy Spirit. You just go, um, yeah, this might... Or think of Jonah, for that matter, who, go, who says, I hear the Holy Spirit, and then I decide to go the opposite direction. And when I do go to Nineveh, I say what the Holy Spirit tells me to say. Sort of. Right. Because when he says this, he's like, um, 30 days, and your whole, everything's going to be, you know, upside down. Is Jonah a good example of free will? Um, sure. In, in, in the fact that, even though you're a prophet and the Holy Spirit can take over you, you at some point do get to decide that I do not, I do not get to be used this way. And the beauty of it is, is both Balaam, Balaam, and no, no, but no, uh, and, and and Jonah are perfect examples of you have free will, and God still sometimes goes, yeah, no, <laughs> I can go to Tarshish. You can, you can't get to Tarshish, but you can go to Tarshish, but you're going to get to Nineveh. Speak what I say, and tell them, in 30 days, everything will be upside down. I will change everything. Okay, 30 days, everything, you know, it'll be like an apocalypse. Everything's upside down. But you made it sound like they're going to be destroyed in 30 days. You know, use the words you gave me. Just saying. Did you ever tell them to repent? Not in so many words, exactly. So yeah, still subject to the, to the, to the will of the prophet. Somebody read me some sections of Judges. Popcorn me some Judges here. Judges 3, 8 through 10. Somebody else take Judges 6, 33 through 34. Somebody else take Judges 11, 29. Next person take Judges 14, 5 through 6. Let's hit a bunch of Judges. Okay, Wendy, go to second. You're out, of, you're out of line, but that's all right. So, who's next? Is Christy's got her... <laughs> okay, for those of you that came in late, we... What if we popcorn this and then start at the beginning with Mark in the next one? <laughs> this is why I set it all up at the beginning. Okay, so, Christy, why don't you start, because I think you've got it already, Judges 3-8. Well, okay, you got Judges 6, who got Judges 3-8? Wendy, so we'll do Wendy, Christy... <laughs> I don't care about the other ones. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushanrashitham, sure. king sure. of the Mesopotamia, uh, and the sons of Israel serving Cushan, blah, 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 eight years. Through what? Through 13? Through 10. Through 10. Three, eight through 10. Okay. 
when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up delivered a, a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. The son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel when he went out to war. The Lord gave Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, so that he prevailed over Cushan. Okay. 6, 32-34. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiturites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also went to Asher, Zebulun, and Nephil to leave, so that they, would, they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you promised. That's all right. 1129. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the entrance. 14, 5 through 6. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. What do you see the Holy Spirit doing these verses? Because <coughs> it's the Holy Spirit doing these things. What's the Holy Spirit doing? One thing, he's apparently coming upon them, like, not just their every breath, but he's giving them something for that short period of time. Mm -hmm. It's a specific spiritual gift for that punctiliar moment. Okay, what else? What Do you see any common consistencies between what that spiritual gift is? Yeah, you kill people really good. Power for battle. Because that's in one of Paul's lists, if I recall, right? <laughs> you can take, you can take, Jawbones and smack a lot of people. You can rip lions apart. You can lead people into battle. You can know when's a good time and a good way to lead people into battle. You do a lot of that, right? So help me out here. Is this what you normally think of as a spiritual gift? Why or why not? Why or why not? You did. She answered. Yeah. Uh huh. Not usually, but yes. That the spirit comes when you need it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Whatever that, you know, whether it be battle or whatever. And Gideon's a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, right? Gideon was a mighty warrior to start with. No, when when he was first called mighty warrior, he's like, "Are you kidding me? I'm in the process of hiding." Yeah. So the Holy Spirit came on Samson, who was somebody who seemed fine with killing people. I came on Gideon, somebody who was like, actually, I'm hiding, thank you. But the Holy Spirit chooses whom he's going to use and why he's going to use them. Why do we not tend to think of this as a spiritual gift? I think we can help. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for me personally, I tend to think of these examples as being a different era, I suppose. And that since since Christ's death and resurrection is like the focus has changed from, like, like in these examples, he's going to establish his earthly people, Israel, and now it's like the kingdom of God has expanded in a different way. It's a different focus, and now we're supposed to be, you know, living at peace with others and loving our enemies and all of that. No, and there, there is a different context here. There is a different context. Is there a danger that we run into in thinking about it as it's a different era and thus God's focus has changed? That's the same, the same danger as saying that God is the angry God of the Old yeah. Testament, loving, peaceful, happy Jesus of the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God said it is absolutely, even painfully crucial that you guys be holy and set apart, even within this world. Whereas in the New Testament, that changed, yes? 
But there is a contextual difference where God is trying to set up a physicality amongst his people, and there's a physical set-apartness that isn't necessarily a physical set-apartness in the New Testament, but that... What were you doing? Well, like, for these people, like, they were aware God was using them to do something out of their comfort zone or giving them victory. And, like, I think if I think of more modern battles, I we're not a God has not made it clear necessarily to the people that he's allowing people to win. Like, that hasn't been communicated. So it seems like this is something of the past when God was in direct communication with the leaders of the country, which might still be the case. But if so, we're not aware of it. Um, well, I think God is still very much in direct communication with us. I'm not sure that the leaders of the country care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. I, I don't think God is any less in communication with us than he was then. Um, it's not like he's announcing it now, like, oh, he ripped up a lion. Like, this doesn't happen the same way now, you know? No. And, and it's, not like, it's not like we're told in Scripture that, that the Messiah is going to come and, and defeat evil physically. I think or, that's what people were expecting. That was what they were expecting, but the Bible's very clear. The Messiah was never told to come to be a righteous warrior that will win in physical battle, right? But he still definitely, aren't we told in the Minor Prophets, he will come as a righteous warrior to bring physical justice to a physical world? Aren't we told in Revelation he does exactly that? Which means we need to be careful. Though I agree, I think it's important to see context, but we need to be careful if we say, well, it's different now. I'm like, well, yeah. And yet, maybe not quite as different as we tend to think. Um, so, it, the idea that the Spirit would cause to, to do something this visceral, would cause to do something so violent, especially when, when we think in terms of love, you go, well, I still think God calls us to be angry, destructive people at times. Maybe not ripping apart lions. Maybe not calling us to battle against Amalekites or what have you. Maybe it's spiritual. There's a song back in the 80s about God's looking for for angry young men that will actually go, I want to change this planet. And I think sometimes, sometimes we unfortunately equate a pacifism that we see in the New Testament with a passiveness that was never in any part of the God's Bible. He never calls us in any way to be passive. Yeah? I don't think that the Holy Spirit's character has changed. Uh, I mean, if you think of it as character traits, as if the things that he calls us to do, he still calls us to do all the things he calls them to do in the Old Testament. Well, but let's go, that's a good point, because is this a different spirit? The one who's calling, the one who's calling, because every time that Samson does something big and hulky, we're told it's the Holy Spirit that's leading him to do it and giving him strength to do it. So, is the character of the Holy Spirit different when he says, I'm going to empower you to do something big and strongy, than when the Holy Spirit said, Balaam, speak these words, or when the Holy Spirit said, Bezazel, I'm going to give you strength and, and ability to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. Because those contexts with different people are different, and the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do different things, does that suggest that the Holy Spirit's character has changed in any of those things? Or is it just he's doing different things at different times, just like any person does, right? All right. So let me read me 1 Samuel 10, 1, and 5 and 6 of that same chapter. It can be even the same person. So let's start with Mark. And again, we're, we're going to go, the next person reads the next verse. So... 1 Samuel 10, 1, and 5 and 6. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? When they arrived at Gilead, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. As Samuel had told him to do. So what's the Holy Spirit doing in these verses? Especially at the end of these... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, read 5 and 6. Yeah, I read the wrong one, I'm sorry. After that, you'll go to Gibeon of God, 
where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. And there will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. So what's the Holy Spirit doing here? What did the Holy Spirit lead Samuel to do? In verse 1. Anoint Saul. What does the Holy Spirit lead Saul to do? In verse 5. Go and prophesy with the others. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit knows what's coming up, tells them what to do, tells them where they're going to be, and goes and prophesies with them. What does the Holy Spirit do in the end of verse 6? Okay. Help me out. Is this a fundamentally new or different sort of action for him in Scripture? Why or why not? That the Holy Spirit might lead you to do things that you may give you information you may not even know, empower you to to have a hole poked between you and then that veil between you and the Lord, and to, to to prophesy that the Holy Spirit might change you from the inside out. Has the focus changed between the Old Testament and the New? Yeah. Um, I think this description works for, for example, for Gideon and Samson as well. Hmm. Gideon was pointedly. So what, how would you say it in your own words? What's going on here? Well, don't we ask the Spirit to do that of us? That, that's what it means to become a Christian, is to change the person that we are in some ways. When you say you want God to be the Lord of your life, what is that supposed to mean? He leads in everything. How? Answered <laughs> <laughs> like somebody who's like, oh, okay, because it's a class on the spirit. But, isn't that what we're supposed to be? I mean, yes, we could say, well, I read his word. Great, yeah. And, and I, 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 iron sharpening iron, I let other people sh share with me. Great. Day-to-day -day basis. When you pray, Lord, lead me today, what exactly are you asking God to do? When you say, when you wake up in the morning, you say, Father, in Jesus' name and through his power, I want you to lead me and, and show me how you want me to live. Help me to react the way I need to react to things. You go, I'm praying to God the Father through Christ the Son. For who to do what? For the Holy Spirit to lead you, aren't you? Is that fundamentally different here? That Aren't we told on a day-to-day -day basis that we are supposed to to belabor the point. That instead of letting the world externally buffet us into its shape, we're supposed to be praying that we are transformed and renewed by the reading of his word. Because great. Ingesting his word. Yes, absolutely. I've known a lot of people who read scripture who weren't changed at all. Why are some people changed and other people not? Is it just some people are better readers than others? Well, like you said, I think um, you have to sharpen that skill. Uh, you have to develop that skill. You have to practice that skill so that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then that you are better equipped to do what the Holy Spirit would like you to do. And at so least... If you read the Word and choose not to... Um, and choose not to change habits or different ways of doing things, then when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it grinds the things. And at least on some levels, part of honing yourself to be willing to and able to be used better by the Holy Spirit, at least on some levels, part of that honing is being willing to let the Holy Spirit work in you. To to want God to what's he saying in the end of verse six here? Yeah. There's who you were yesterday. How about you let God change you into who he wants you to be tomorrow? And then tomorrow, how about you let him start changing you into who he wants you to be the next day? How about, now, you could say there's also this sense of you move from death to life. It's one single change. You were, you were Saul the doofus yesterday, but now you're Saul the great tall king today. There's a degree to which that is true, but... 
Is this only the Holy Spirit works that one time to change you that one time, and then nothing in Scripture ever says that he's ever trying to change you ever again? It doesn't have to be an either-or. I, I think in Scripture we're told time and again about how the Holy Spirit moves us from this into this. And it, it keeps working. It has to be a both end, doesn't it? He's that kind of... Because are we told in Scripture God takes rotten people and says, I want you to be slightly less rotten? No! I want you to be a new creation. By the way, the moment I make you a new creation, you stink at it. Because you haven't been that before, right? So every day, I need to keep honing that new creation. Every day, changing this. Even Paul says, oh, it's not like I've arrived. I'm not, you know, perfect. Keep working on this all the time. Well, then Saul's a good example of exactly opposite. How so? He, he doesn't want this. He doesn't ask for this. And maybe for a brief time in there, he tried to listen to the Lord, but very quickly he started doing his own thing and didn't allow the Lord to continue working with him. That's a very good point. And interestingly, they're both named Saul, aren't they? Huh. Go figure. Yeah. Okay. Somebody read me 1 Chronicles 28, 11 through 12. Whoever's the next person, I have lost track. 1 Chronicles 28, 11 through 12. Alex, why don't you take it? First Chronicles 28, 11-12. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans uh, for the portico and the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of Jehovah. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the course of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, the, the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasury by the way, if you look at the beginning of this chapter, I'm pretty sure that's where David is telling everybody, I wanted to make a temple. God went, no, you botched it. It'll have to be your son that does it. But what is the Holy Spirit doing here? Which is a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what you normally... Yeah, that's an interesting part. Have you seen this before? Have you seen the Holy Spirit giving people a gift of craftsmanship? Report maybe, you know, up an exodus? Yeah. But in addition to that, it's... I see it as God's mercy because he, he wouldn't let David build it, but he still gave him the picture of what it would be. Absolutely. And promised him that his son would. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so what do you see the Holy Spirit doing here? What is the what's the nature of this inspiration? I mean, it's craftsmanship, but it's also what? It's not just he made you able to design the whole the, the, the holy temple of God, right? Is that what David is saying? He made me able to design this. He gave me the spiritual gift of being able to design this. No, he designed it and gave him the plans. The Holy Spirit designed it and gave him the plans. Is that fundamentally different? Then what we see in other scripture, do me a favor, let's keep going. Uh, Wendy, take 2 Samuel 23, 1-2. Megan, take Mark 12, 36. Is this, a, is this a, a particularly bizarre thing, that God might give you the plans for a temple? Why would you say yes or no? No, it was a tabernacle. Pardon me? We did that with a tabernacle. Did that with a tabernacle? Okay, Wendy, 2 Samuel 23, 1-2. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of God of Jacob, and sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. This is the very last thing I'm going to say, and it's the, 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 the words of the Holy Spirit himself are on my tongue. Megan, Mark 12, 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, so what kinds of things do we see the Holy Spirit doing in David in these verses here? In 2 Samuel and in Mark, what do we see the Holy Spirit doing with David? Giving him ideas, right? 
Is that what he says? He's giving me not just ideas that I articulated. These are God's very words laid on my tongue and I'm babbling them out to you. Is this fundamentally different? Why is it though that sometimes people think it's odd? We can picture God inspiring a psalm. But God inspiring a floor plan seems odd to some people. Oh, um, like Emily mentioned, it was the same with the tabernacle. It says that you know, God showed Moses exactly what these things were supposed to look like. So when I read about, oh, and there's pomegranates and other things, and like, and there's cherubim, they cherubim on there, like, well, that looks like. But Moses was shown. Mm-hmm exactly what it needed to look like so that he could pass that on to the craftsman. Mm-hmm. And um, and God told him, you need to make sure it's exactly like I showed you on the mountain. And But I'm not entirely sure, like we were just reading this part as a family, um, because the tabernacle and then the temple are also an image of the temple in heaven. Right. And so there's, there's definitely something unique and special about this being crafted in a certain way because it represents the real thing in heaven. And um, and I don't know necessarily that uh, God showing the designer of our church building how it has to look is necessarily the same thing. It doesn't necessarily take away from the fact that God can do that. Right. But, um, this was a, there was, a, again, a specific context as to why God yeah. did this. It's not like every floor plan is going to be, or that you should always go, dear Lord, please just lay on me the floor plan of the house you want me to build, you know. But, but why is it that we, that, that people will struggle to think that God would give a floor plan more than we would struggle that God would give a song, or that God would inspire a painting, or God would inspire a poem. God would inspire a floor plan, and we go, well, it seems rather mundane, doesn't it? Well, but it's a special floor plan. Yeah, but I expect God to inspire aesthetics. You know, this was pretty aesthetic. Yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between there's a difference between artistic people being inspired to do artistic sorts of things and guys working with wood. Sometimes it was just, well, here's the plan, and you build this rough outline, and you tack some things on it, and it's good enough. But like when you're putting a vanity in a twenty thousand square foot home for a really really rich guy who wants everything perfect, like he, the the person you're building it for has something in mind that he wants, and you're trying to make something beautiful. It's going to please the person it's being made for. And just like as a songwriter, I want to make something beautiful that's pleasing either to my audience or to God if it's a worship song. Um, it was the same when I was building with vanities. Excellent. There's two ways of answering that to say, gee, PK, what you just said was totally, totally wrong. One, Michael just articulated beautifully. Why can't this be beautiful? Why can't this be beautiful? Why can't, why can't that, that chemical equation be beautiful? If you get up in higher math, if you like math, it's beautiful. Start studying the Fibonacci sequence, it's beautiful. Math is a beautiful thing. I tried to instill that in my children and they never saw the music of math. So one of the answers is to say, stop making a distinction saying, this is beautiful and this is just stuff. This is just journeyman acting. No, this can also be beautiful. Okay, there's another way of answering this. Does inspiration have to be artistic? Does it have to be beautiful? Does it have to be aesthetic? Was Samson inspired to rip a lion apart with his bare hands. <laughs> My point is, we make these distinctions because, again, 
we want to flower up, artisticify, conceptualize the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Can God inspire you to get off your butt and do what he told you to do? Okay, you need to go apologize to your wife. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go do the right thing. Now. Can you give me the artsy words? No. The artsy words are, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Can there be times where the Holy Spirit says, No, you keep expecting flowery conceptual things. I'm talking about beautiful, tangible things. There's a beauty to this. See the music of the spheres. Hear it. Another time for God's like, Stop just waiting until it looks beautiful to you. Do what I'm telling you to do. What are you chuckling about? I love that! Jonah gives one of the most eloquent, beautiful prayers in Scripture, and the next verse is, and the fish puked. And it's, it's actually a relatively coarse word, not a dirty word, but it's like, and the fish puked. God's like, fine, Nineveh. It doesn't have to be beautiful. And yet, there's beauty in things we don't tend to look at as beautiful. Can we, can we see both halves of that so that we don't find ourselves going, I can see a sculpture being inspired, but not a cabinet. I was also thinking um, the ark that God told Noah to build to give the exact dimensions, plans, and everything. And, and I'm sure he did a great job. I, I doubt it was gorgeous. <laughs> it was just a big box. Box? Seaworthy box. So, can the Holy Spirit still provide this sort of mundane, workaday inspiration today? Or is that just a special Old Testament, Bezazel, David sort of thing? Can he inspire you to do your job? And find beauty? And to do things even when you don't find beauty? Because there's a beauty in being inspired. Can he inspire you at a bank? Can he inspire you at an insurance company? Can he inspire you at a hospital? Because we can say, well, he can inspire you at a ministry. What were you going to say? You could even do, you know, granaries under the inspiration of God. That God might say, there's going to be famine. So I'm going to encourage you to build some granaries so you can store this stuff so that later on you can dole it out to the people in little bits and pieces. Here, let me explain this in a dream. Maybe. I mean, hypothetically. Somebody read me Second Chronicles 15, 1 through 4, and then somebody else 20. 13 through 15. <clears throat> the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Odin. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. <coughs> Twenty. In their, I'm sorry. Okay. In their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him. He was found by them. Okay, so a prophet came out and said that. Okay, twenty, thirteen through fifteen. 
All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood before the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon uh, Jaziel, son of Zechariah, and son of Benahah, the son of Madinah, a Levite, a descendant of uh, Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. I know, that's all right. I'm sorry. I still love you. What's the Holy Spirit doing in, this, in these verses, and does it seem a little bit more like the kind of stuff we tend to think of as the Holy Spirit doing with people? What's he doing? Speaking through people. And, and, and speaking, like, prophetic kinds of stuff. Why does that seem more in line to so many people than what we've been talking about, than floor plans and tearing apart lions and other things? Doesn't that fit more with a, at least a modern idea of what worship is, of what coming to the Lord is? It's hearing from the Lord. It's a little mystical and, and to some degree, if you will. We love, when we think spiritual, we tend to think mystical, and that's not the same thing, even remotely. Mystical means hidden. Spiritual means of the spirit instead of coming from your flesh. Does God say, now hide that? No. No. If you read Psalm 143, 10, Ezekiel 36, 27. Uh, Christy, why don't you take Psalm 143, 10, and then uh, Donna, Ezekiel 36, 27. What specific kind of leading do we hear here? Because it's still, you know, he's talking to, you know, prophets and stuff, but specifically in these two, what's he doing? To obedience, leading to obedience. And obedience specifically to? In, in learning God's will. And yeah. God's law, God's will. Reading God's word, understanding it, being led to know how to follow it. Isn't that what he's been doing this whole time? And all this is, here's what I want you to be. Here's what I want you to do. And I will empower you. I will encourage you. I will train you. I will fill you. I will enable you. I will give you life to do this. Isn't that what he's been doing this whole time? At what level? Mystical levels? In hidden, strange, Jedi-like ways. Oh, he knew something he shouldn't know. <gasps> he must be a spirit-filled kind of person. Is this supposed to be odd, weird, you only do this in a worship service, or holy people do this, whereas normal people can't, or it's supposed to be things that feel very unnatural to you? What consistent sense do you get through what we've been talking about? In everything you're doing, right? I want to show you at every level what to do. I'm giving you the breath of life. I'm willing to, to, to fill you to do anything I want you to do. And I'm going to train you and I'm going to empower you to do this. How might the Holy Spirit be doing that even today? Gasp. Or is that just an Old Testament thing? Or just a Pentecost thing? God, Holy Spirit, hasn't really done anything other than be Jiminy Cricket for you ever since. Seriously. How does the Holy Spirit still do exactly this stuff today? He opens. He illuminates a scripture to you so that you can know how to follow His commands. What else can you do? Yeah. Yep. Oh, we haven't even gotten to Joel and stuff. What else? How does, does God do this today? Can God 
lead you through his Holy Spirit to know how to lead us in worship on a Sunday morning. Beyond just your ability to be a good musician and be a conscientious person, can God's Holy Spirit actually direct you? Can God's Holy Spirit direct you as, as you're teaching somebody or mentoring somebody? Not just, yeah, I'm really good at this, but to go, no, say this. Say this. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. Say this. Can God do this as a parent? Where you just go, this is what's going on in your child. This is what you need to do. But that's not what I would do. Which is why I'm telling you. This is what's going on in your child. This is what you need to do. It's not your natural reaction. Can God's Holy Spirit still do this today? Then why wouldn't he? If he's actually living in you at a level he was not living in people back then, why on earth would we ever compartmentalize him away from the majority of our lives? Let's pick that up next week. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for loving us in ways that we may never even thought of. Lord, thank you for walking with us and filling us with your life's breath. Thank you for encouraging us and empowering us. Thank you, Lord, for making us able to do what you show us. Lord, thank you. And I pray, help us to look for your Holy Spirit and help us to be willing for your Holy Spirit to change us every day into different people. Give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.